First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, the entire chapter. And uh, let me start to read and follow along in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, just listen carefully. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter <clears throat> not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. How would you like to come on a Sunday morning and that be the statement that is made to you? Paul is very direct, very firm, very correcting. But before we dig into this passage, it is important to remember that Paul has just written in 1 Corinthians 4 of his being a father to the believers in Corinth and of his love for them that includes discipline. In fact, if we jump all the way to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, where Paul is explaining why he wrote what he did in 1 Corinthians, we read this. He says, I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you that you would all share my joy, for I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul's not scolding. He's saying, I am crying. 
I'm grieving for you. I see something going on that shouldn't be happening. And I want to reach out to you with my sincere love and say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. See, Paul is calling out the believers. He's calling them out regarding sexual immorality because of his deep love for them. He's not trying to provoke, embitter, or even grieve. He's not doing that because we just read that. He says, you know, these, this is how fathers should be and this is, I'm like a father to you and I love you and I care about you and so on. He cares so much about them that he is compelled to speak the truth in love. But what is it that he's calling out? He's talking about the fact that a member of the church, a professing Christian who should be living by the Holy Spirit and therefore behaving differently than someone who does not believe in God or God's word, that believer, that professing Christian, is behaving in a way that is condemned even by unbelievers. He is having sexual relations with his own stepmother. By the way, when I read this, and you say, well, not me. Good, this doesn't apply to me. How many of us are sitting here with sin, with, with the knowledge of the, or the awareness of having done something, that we say, no, you know, this grieves the heart of the Lord. Your conscience is bothering you. There is a work of the Holy Spirit that's already at, at work in you. Again, I'm not saying this to condemn or to find fault. I speak of myself and as I say this to say, as we come in the presence of God, what is the conviction that we have of sin in our lives? It's not just to say, well, that, that's a big sin, that's the big sinner, they can deal with it. It's to say, what about me? And so we read this word, we listen to it, we understand what's going on. What did the Corinthians do? How did they react? Paul says, you are proud. You are proud. He doesn't fully explain why they are proud, but it could be that they have a distorted view of Christian freedom and grace. If I'm already saved, why not indulge the flesh for maximum pleasure? I'm going to heaven. I can do what I want. A distorted view of what freedom in Christ really means. A distorted view of what it means to actually come before the Lord and receive his grace and to receive forgiveness of sins. In just a few minutes, we'll be participating in the communion. We want to come to that table and say, Lord God, because you shed your blood, because you broke your body, I can be forgiven from my sin. That's the wonderful opportunity we have, and I'll come to that in just a little bit too. But the statement that he's making to them, he says, you are proud. What are you proud of? You think that you understand grace or freedom or something else and then you just boast about doing this kind of thing? Or they may have a distorted view of sexuality. What's wrong with it? They're in love. They love each other. Or what's wrong with it? It's just sex. So he says, maybe you have a distorted view of sexuality. Maybe you have a distorted loyalty to this man. That you're not correcting, that you're not saying anything. 
Maybe you have a distorted view of your own actions. You think that you're being very holy or right. In fact, all through the book of 1 Corinthians, he calls them out repeatedly saying, you think too highly of yourselves. You think that you know everything. You think that you're doing the right thing. And he says, no. You've got to pay attention. Or maybe they have a distorted view of God and who God is and what he says and what he wants from us. Maybe it's all of the above. In any case, it's very clear that Paul does not approve of their actions or in this case, their inaction. He urges them to mourn, to repent collectively and to address the specific situation by judging rightly. We talked about judgment and not being judgmental, but we said the Bible does call us to judge. And so he says, you need to judge this matter. You need to take action. His concern, Paul's concern is that if the situation is not dealt with, it will affect the whole church. Sin, just like a small amount of yeast, even in a large batch of dough, can affect the whole dough. That's the image he's giving. And again, we'll come back to that as we share in communion because he's referring to the Passover meal and he's referring to what yeast does and how unleavened bread represents a dough that is without yeast and what that speaks to spiritually. But, and we'll consider a lot more of these kinds of things and what, what we need to look at. But he's talking about this correction that is necessary and today, I'm not talking about the specific action of correction. There are some specific things that he tells them to do, and then some specific things that happen. We'll talk about that more, and in terms of correction and so on. But this morning, what I want to do is, uh, oh, and, and we'll also look at what happens if you commit a sexual sin. What happens if you commit a sexual sin, or any sin? There is always a way out in the Lord. There is a way to avoid the sin, there's a way to repent and to be cleansed of sin. There's a way to reconcile from the effect or the consequences of the sin. There's a way for us to move forward. That is the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. We don't ever listen to these words and say, oh, I'm condemned. Rather, we say, oh, Lord, I depend on you. I come fall at your feet. I come to the cross, and there's a there is a reconciliation. There is a repentance of mine that results in reconciliation. There is a path forward for me. Praise the Lord. That's the joy that we have in our lives. But when we do all of that, when we consider these things and we say there is a way forward, we'll talk about that this morning. What I want to do is consider Paul's charge that sexual immorality must be dealt with. He's focusing on that. Why? The Old Testament expressly forbids incestual relations, including that of a man with his stepmother. It explicitly references this. Do not. Do not do this. Right? But the sexual immorality Paul is referring to here is not restricted to just that specific type of forbidden incestual relationship. It's not just restricted to that. The word he's using here is porneia, from which we get the word Pornography. And it's used in the Bible, this word porneia is used in the Bible to refer to all manner of sexual sin as well as sex outside of marriage. So why does he make such a strong statement about sexual immorality? 
Remember when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we saw that our physical bodies are meant to be the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that collectively, we are being built up to be the habitation, to be the dwelling place of a holy God. That's what God desires for us. And if you, if you, you know, and remember, the purpose of a temple is to be the place where God is present. And he says, you are the temple of the living God. And so when we think about that, we, we're going to read this the next time in a, or in a couple of weeks maybe, but we read ahead, we read ahead in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 through 20, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the message that he's conveying. This is the truth that he wants to lay out. And so he'll continue to expound on this in chapter 6 and 7 and really throughout the letter. But here's the important foundational or underlying truth that we must grasp before we proceed. Sex can be considered moral or immoral only if you understand and agree with what the Bible says regarding sex. If you're not following the Bible, if you're not looking to the Bible, why would you think of sex or anything related to it as immoral? It is what it is, and I'm going to go through that in just a second. The point here is, we have to come to this word, we have to come to these requirements, we have to come to these charges by saying, am I in the Lord Jesus? When you meet somebody else and they don't agree with these points of view, don't try to convince them of this. Don't say, oh no, this is wrong and that is wrong and sexual morality and that. They have no context for it. Bring them to the Lord. Help them to understand who Jesus is. And because they understand who Jesus is, they would understand his word. And when they understand his word, they would start to follow his word. And when they start to follow his word, they see how they should live. And they say, oh, this is what has to result. But if you start here without this, without the cross, without Jesus, they have no context. But here, Paul is speaking to believers. And he's saying, you know, if you were not associating with those that were sexually immoral, you'd have to leave the world. No, I'm talking about the people in the church, he says. I'm talking about those who are professing to be believers. What does he say? He says all of the things that are coming up. But here's the thing. I want you to understand, first and foremost, even as I'm saying these things, sex is good. In our youth and young adult fellowship, we have been discussing the topics of t sex and sexuality. And the key takeaway from one of our first discussions was that sex is good. It was originally intended by God for pleasure, for procreation, as an expression between the husband and the wife. It was ordained by God. When he said, be fruitful and multiply, he wasn't talking about anything else other than the fact that they would have sexual relations. So it's not something that we can say, oh, not good. It was absolutely good. But anything that is intended for good can be readily corrupted and twisted 
so that it no longer resembles or fulfills the original purpose. It can be twisted. In an uh, in a excellent article entitled The Gospel and Sex that I'm quoting from extensively, that I'm about to quote from extensively, Timothy Keller provides three different personal and cultural attitudes towards sex that have been predominant throughout the centuries. The first attitude towards sex is sexual realism or sex as the fulfillment of a natural appetite. So many of the Greeks, many of the ancient Greeks and Romans viewed sex like any other bodily activity, such as eating or sleeping. When you feel like doing it, you should do it. Just be careful not to overdo it. Don't eat too much, don't sleep too much, and don't have sex too much. You know, it's just an appetite. The, this view has made its way into our context. It is a view of sex called realism. And realists claim to be neutral about sex. They see it as just one human activity among many. The realist message, prominent in today's public school sex education, is that we should understand the natural biological drive of sex, be careful about sexual activity so that there are no negative consequences, and master it like any other skill. The second attitude towards sex is sexual platonism or sexual activity as the expression of animal passion. It's not how you manage your desires, it's your biology. You can't help but indulge in sexual activity just as any other animal. And interestingly, one of the most influential branches of Hellenistic or Greek philosophy, it viewed the spirit as the highest good and the body, the flesh, as lesser. That is, the lower physical animal nature was seen as chaotic and dark and the higher, more, more rational spiritual nature was seen as civilized and noble. And so this led to viewing sex as a dirty thing. Sex was a necessary evil for the propagation of the human race. Premarital sex was forbidden in this view, not because it was immoral, but because sex in general was dirty and was allowable only for the higher good of having children and building up the family name. Unfortunately, this view has influenced Christianity and the church. The false thinking amongst some Christians is that truly spiritual people should refrain from sex to not indulge the lower physical nature, the flesh. Don't have sex. Sex is allowable only if you're trying to have children. And sexual pleasure is not appropriate for spiritually minded people. These are all false thinking that never came from the Bible. The third attitude towards sex is that of sexual romanticism or sex as fully expressed creativity. The romanticists think that human beings in their unspoiled original state are brimming with natural goodness and creativity. It is society with its moral rules and restrictions that has stifled what is naturally beautiful. Goodness would be achieved by liberating the basic human instincts which are in themselves pure. Sex becomes a critical way of self-expression, a way to be yourself, to find yourself. So for bio biological realists, all sex is right if it's safe and in line with what, me, what most people are doing. 
For Platonists, the animal passions of the flesh can't be helped, but the flesh inhibits the spirits, inhibits the spirit, so sex is naturally tainted in some way and should be indulged in only when necessary. For Romanticists, the quality of interpersonal love is the primary touchstone that makes sex right or wrong. It's okay if you have sex, if you just love each other. The Christian attitude towards sex, the biblical position, differs quite radically from each of these three views. Contrary to the sex as appetite view, the Bible teaches that sexual desires, just like any of our desires, can be broken and are usually idolatrous, self-glorifying, not God-glorifying, self-seeking, not other-serving. By themselves, the Bible is telling us, sexual appetites are not a safe guide. You can't say, I had this appetite, I just filled it. And we are entrust, instructed to flee our lusts. Contrary to seeing ourselves merely as animals and the Platonist view of anything physical being less than ideal, the Bible tells us that we are created in the image of God as whole beings consisting of spirit, soul, and body, all of which are very good. God didn't create and say, the spirit is good, the body not so good. He said, all of this is very good. And, and with the power of God, he gives us the means to live self-controlled lives in both thought and action. And so as, since I've already mentioned God himself ordained sex, God sees sex as good, not evil. And contrary to the romantic view, fall in love, get married, it's all about love. The Bible teaches that love and sex are not primarily for individual happiness. If that's a revelation to you, let me repeat that. Marriage is not to make you happy. Marriage is to make you holy. The Bible views sex not primarily as self-fulfillment, but as a way for a married couple to know and to serve each other in an intimate expression of God's love for God's glory. Bottom line, sex as intended by God is good, when it is within the moral and biblical boundaries that enable the fulfillment of God's purpose for the individual, the couple, the family, the church, his kingdom, and all of humanity. Quite importantly, love that is expressed in physical intimacy, when two people become one flesh, that is reserved for the context in which that intimacy is defined in God modeled on Christ, and lived out unselfishly by the Spirit. That's how God is involved in the marriage union. Which brings us to two foundational points very quickly. A biblical physical union is expressed within a covenant relationship. A physical union creates deep intimacy and communion between two people. When you're involved in a sexual act, you're involved in something that is deeply intimate, and you're involved in, with that person in a very different way. Physical in, intimacy affects us in deep and lasting ways. It's not just a temporary thing. And someone who goes from one casual hookup to another must suppress their emotions and sear their conscience to keep from being hurt or con convicted by the Holy Spirit. You're, you're, you're suppressing all of that in order to keep doing this. 
And even if someone is in a monogamous relationship for any length of time, when they break up, they suffer terrible hurt and loss. Consider then the alternative that the Bible presents. A physical union is of these kinds of natures. And again, I'm not going through a lot of detail, but I want to present what does the Bible say? What does the Bible talk about when it talks about the physical union? It says that a man or a woman should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That having established a relationship with Christ, they add then at the right time and in the right season of their life, as led by the Holy Spirit, seek to enter into a relationship with someone else who has also established a relationship with Christ and based on the covenantal relationship that God has established with each one of them individually, they seek to establish a lifelong covenantal relationship with each other that mirrors and bears witness to the covenantal relationship of Christ and the church. I should repeat that. The Bible is telling us that a man and a woman should seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That having established that relationship with Christ at the right time, led by the Spirit, as they wait upon the Lord, they will seek to enter into a relationship with another person who has done the same thing. You can't enter into the relationship and make them something. You can't do that. You have to be able to say, this is who I am and where I am in Christ Jesus. And you meet that person and you say, where are you in Christ Jesus? And because they have established their relationship with the Lord, you say, ah, let us explore, let's pray, let's consider what's possible here. And as they do that, they are seeking to establish a covenantal relationship. It's not casual. It's not temporary. They're not saying a contract. You know, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. It is a covenantal relationship, self-sacrificing and giving in every way to say, I want to enter into this lifelong relationship with you. And I am not saying a covenantal relationship based on my understanding. I'm saying a covenantal relationship based on what God has already set in place. The covenant relationship that he has established with his children and with his church, his bride. Based on that, I want to model this relationship on that. I want to bear witness to that. I want to give testimony that in the way that I lead up to marriage and in the way that I live my married life, I will represent the covenantal relationship of Christ and the church. So you see, the marriage union is a spiritual union first before it is a physical union. The marriage union has to be established so that both the husband and the wife are progressing in holiness. Happiness will follow. Joy will come. Things of the world will be there. But the goal is that we would be able to serve one another to become more like Jesus, to become more holy, to become more transformed. And so, in the context of the marriage union, the husband and the wife, in the context of that covenantal relationship, the husband and their wife express their caring 
serving love for each other that includes the physical union. Not before, not in other contexts. Having established this spiritual union, they partake in a physical union. Which brings us to an important point about physical unions. Physical unions do not define who you are in Christ. If physical unions are special to the Lord and physical unions are in the context of marriage, does everyone have to be married? No. In fact, Paul, who writes this, and Jesus, who Paul imitates, were both single. It was not at all that you had to be married. The Bible is not substituting. The Bible is not trying to replace the Platonist view that the flesh is somehow lesser than the spirit. And so all these things in the flesh, uh, you know, that kind of thing. That's not what it's trying to do. It's not replacing that with this, this idea that being married is somehow, you know, or being single, pardon me, is somehow lesser and the ideal is to be married. That's not the point. He's not saying that at all. As Paul points out even later, you may be called to celibacy or you may have never married. Or you may have lost a spouse. In those circumstances, you're not saying that unless I am married, I am somehow less fulfilled. What I am saying is that in marriage is the context for all of these expressions of love. But you're not saying, I have to be married only. If I'm not married, somehow I'm not fulfilled. See, the presence or absence of a physical union is not what defines who you are. If the physical union is the ultimate achievement of our human existence, what does the world say? There's something wrong with you if you die a virgin. As if you, that physical union is the ultimate thing that you must accomplish. You, if that is the case, then you will have to spend all your time, all your talent, and all your treasure on your appearance, on your attire, and on your ability to find a partner. Because that becomes the greatest goal. But that's not what the Bible is talking about at all. And the Bible is not saying that you have to be physically attractive. You have to do all of these kinds of things to win a mate. The Bible is saying, seek first the kingdom of God. Know the Lord. Let him bring into place everything that is necessary. Because you see, the, our, our identity and our self-worth should not come from non-biblical worldviews that emphasize appearance, selfish pleasure, and boasting about our exploits. Our identity and self-worth has to come from the intimacy of relationship with a loving God who loves us in entirely fulfilling ways so that we are not lacking for any good thing. We're not deficient. We're not seeking to be fulfilled in, in another person. We're saying, Lord, because of who you are and how you love me and what you have seen me as, there's nothing lacking in my life. I'm content. I have all that I need. I, have, I am sufficient in Christ. And our identity and self-worth comes from seeing ourselves and others as God sees us. Our identity and self-worth comes from fulfilling the purpose and plan of God 
for our lives. So this morning, I want to encourage you to respond and apply the word of God that we have heard by understanding what the Bible says about sex. All that we are talking about in these chapters and all these truths are based on the word of God. Pray and ask the word, ask the Lord, who is the word. Make this really real to me. Let me understand these truths in light of your word. The word is not given to grieve us, to deny us some pleasure, to condemn us. The word is given for our good. It is God's good design. The focus of this message is not sexual immorality is bad. The focus of this message is this. God's good design is good. God's plan for our lives is good. God's truth for us when applied is good. God is good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for your gracious, loving kindness to us that helps us, Lord, to apply the word that we have heard. And we pray, Father, that you will cause us, Lord, to examine our lives so that every part of this word would apply for every part of our lives. Lord, maybe there isn't blatant sin, but there could be some hidden sin. Maybe, Lord, we have come to you and repented and seen you cleanse us. But there are some other things, some other actions we need to take. We pray that we will. We pray that in every way, Lord, we will take to heart the word of God. And we will know that it's because you love us and care for us and want only the best for us that you give these commands to us. So help us to receive it. We pray, Father, that you will guide and direct our thinking and cause this word to make a difference in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.